$50,000. That was the opening bid. But the room remained silent. $50,000 was a lot of money. But that's the price that Rome had said this district was worth. If you wanted to be the next tax collector, it would cost you $50,000. Come on, the auctioneer said. This is the lakefront district at the, the Sea of Galilee. This, this is a, a rich, wealthy area. You can, you can make that back in months. And then whatever you have left is yours to keep. Well, suddenly a hand went up, 50000 And then another, 55000 60000 65000 As the price started to climb, the amount of people bidding dropped. It was, it was a wealthy district, but you'd have to be ruthless to make that kind of money and still be able to take your cut afterwards. But still two people were bidding, and finally it was one, 80,000. 80,000 going once, 80,000 twice, sold. The auctioneer looks out at the person whose last hand was up, and he said, what's your name? Levi, the guy said, it's Levi. Well, Levi is the guy we're about to meet in Luke chapter 5. As you turn in your Bible to Luke 5.27, what we see is Levi was a tax collector. Now, what you need to know is he was also a Jew. He lived there in Capernaum. That was his town. He had bought the franchise. He was now one of the tax collectors for Rome. You know, in our day, people don't like tax collectors much, do we? But in that day, it was even worse because tax collectors were thieves. They were extortionists. They were traitors. The people of Israel did not like these turncoats who were now working for the Roman government. And truth be told, the Romans didn't even like the tax collectors. They, they looked at these people like they were pimps because they made their living exploiting others. And so Rome didn't have much respect for these people either. Levi is a guy that was shunned by everybody in society. He would, he would sit in his tax booth there by the road. He would come out in the morning and set it up. It would be near the seashore because he wanted to watch the boats coming in with their catch. And he was on the main road where he would see the caravans coming through. And he would, he would stop them and he'd collect a toll tax for use of the roads and a, a tax for the goods and whatever else he could find to tax you for. And if, if business were slow, if the caravans were not coming through, well, then he turned to the locals. Let me see if there's something I can find that you need to pay for. And the fishermen, well, the fishermen knew Levi well because he was there every morning. As their boats were beached, as they brought their catch in from a night of fishing, Levi was there to count the fish and to take his cut. Well, the text doesn't tell us this, but I imagine that he was there. He was there when that miraculous catch of fish that we saw in the first part of chapter 5 happened as Peter, James, and John bring their, their boats ashore as, as they're there, remember, there were two overflowing boats. They were barely staying afloat because there were so many fish. And, and Levi would have been licking his lips as he looked at the huge haul. As he, as he looked at the, the revenue he was about to, to make off this miraculous catch of fish. But then he was blown away. Because these three guys who had been hoping for a catch like this, their whole life had walked away from it. Remember, they had left everything to follow this man named Jesus. And, and Levi, as he's looking at the biggest payday these guys would ever have, he looks at them and he thinks, fools. 
What kind of fool walks away from this kind of wealth? Here, here, here's your payday and you're walking away to follow this man, Jesus. Well, somebody else processed the fish. He got his cut and he went back to his booth. And as he was there, he was, he was thinking about it. He was thinking all day and all night, were they really fools? These guys had found something that they thought was so much more significant than the stuff the world offered, and they walked away from it. And Levi, in his miserable state, he was rich, rich beyond belief, but he was miserable, and he started to think, what if I could leave it all behind? What if I could follow Jesus? But then he, he pushed the thought out of his mind. No, nobody would have him. Jesus wouldn't want anything to do with him. He was a pariah to people. He was damaged goods. He, he had made his bed, and, and now he had to live in it. But, but what about those things he had heard Jesus teaching? As, as he sat there in his booth by the seashore, and the crowds were there, and Jesus was teaching from the boat, he heard Jesus say things like, I've come to make all things new. And, and Levi thought, all things new. And, and what about that morning? He, he had sat in his booth as the crowds came running by. Remember what we saw earlier in chapter 5? Jesus was teaching in a home, and the crowds of people were coming by. And as, as the masses of people were pushing past his booth, there at the end of the, the group were four guys carrying a, a pallet with a paralyzed man on it. And as, as they came over the hill and saw that crush of people, they had to stop right there in front of Levi. And, and Levi's looking at this guy on the pallet. They, they make eye contact. They stare at each other for a moment. And then those guys went on and around and up onto the roof. And, and a little while later, remember, the, the man left. Jesus told him, pick up your pallet and walk. Your sins are forgiven. And, and Levi, as he's there in the booth, sees this paralyzed guy. Well, he's not paralyzed anymore. He's walking. And he, and he comes right by the booth. And, and Levi looks at the guy and says, hey, weren't they carrying you a minute ago? And, and the guy smiles at Levi. Nobody ever smiled at Levi, but this guy did. And he smiles and he says, Jesus healed me. Jesus said, my sins are forgiven, and he walked on. Sins. Oh, Levi knew about sins. He had them in abundance, and, and if he ever forgot, people didn't let him forget. When they would walk by and see Levi, people would look at him, and they'd, they'd spit in the dirt in front of him. And they'd call him a crook, a thief, a traitor. And as Levi's sitting there in the booth... And the crowd is starting to disperse. People are walking by and, and, and they're all sneering at him again. So he looks down. He doesn't want to make eye contact as the people walk by. But suddenly there's a shadow that falls over his booth as he's sitting there. And, and Levi looks up expecting to see a, another customer who's going to cuss him out as he pays his, his taxes. But instead of insults, he hears an invitation an invitation we see in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 28. It says, After that, Jesus went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And Levi left everything behind. And he got up and he began to follow him. You see, as, as Jesus leaves the home, he's healed the paralytic, he's taught the crowds, and as he's walking by, uh, he looks over at Levi. 
And unlike everybody else who's walking by, Jesus doesn't see Levi for who he is. Jesus sees Levi for who he can be. Who he can be if he'll come to Christ. Who he can be to have a life of more significance than what the world offers. Uh, A life that is not a throwaway life anymore, but one that can be redeemed and changed. And as Levi hears that invitation, follow me, he gets up leaving the piles of money there on the table and he walks away. We find in the Gospel of Matthew a parallel account of this. If you read Matthew chapter 9, you'll see the same account of the healing of the paralytic and then the call. And what you'll find there is that the name Levi is not used, instead it's Matthew. Matthew literally means gift of God, gift of God. And the guy that God used to write the gospel of Matthew is Levi, the one we're looking at today. Levi not only became a follower of Christ, he became a disciple of Christ, and he was given the privilege of being one of the people who gave us the gift of the the New Testament that we have in our hands today. Here is a guy whose life was a throwaway, a guy who was shunned by everybody except for Jesus Christ. And when he came to Christ, his life changed, his purpose, everything that he pursued in life. It was no longer the stuff of the world, but now he was pursuing the Lord of life. And I love what we see in the next verse because as a brand new believer, he wants his friends to also come to Christ. So he throws a party. And and this guy was known for his parties, friends. This would have been a bash. And so when Levi says, party at my place tonight, the crowds came. We see he's invited his co-workers and friends. It says, and Levi gave a big reception for him, for Jesus in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him. But as the party's going on, notice that not everybody's enjoying it. Remember, we saw the religious leaders last week. They had the best seats. They were on the, the couch. They were in the recliners. They were in the living room. They loved to have the best seats at a party, but they weren't at this party inside. They were standing outside, scowling at everybody who came. They would never be caught in a house like Levi's. This guy was a, a wicked sinner. They didn't associate with him. And as they're watching everybody coming in, uh, it says in verses 30 through 35, the Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come. When the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. I've shared with you before how um, I worked my way through seminary as a police officer in Dallas. And when I was a cop in Dallas, uh, going to seminary, I'd work midnight to eight as a policeman. I'd go to class and sleep a couple hours and then get up and do my homework and do it all over again. I did that for almost a decade. And I had a lot of nicknames, uh, some I can't repeat from this pulpit. Uh, but, you know, a lot of the cops uh, called me Reverend Raj or Pastor with a Pistol and, and a few other things, like I said, I can't share. But, 
there, there was a, a church out in uh, Gun Barrel City. If you're familiar with the Dallas area, about 50 miles southeast of Dallas is this town called Gun Barrel City. And it's right there uh, by the, the lake of the uh, Cedar Creek Lake. And at Memorial Day weekend, like happens at all lakes, people would come in droves. There were, there were partiers. There was a big bike rally that would happen where the motorcyclists would come. And there was a church in that community that wanted to reach out to, to this crowd that was coming. And so they decided to have a, a big tent revival. They were going to do this rally and revival. And uh, to reach into that, that crowd that was coming, they, they got a former motorcycle gang member. And his name was Zigzag. Now, Zigzag uh, is the, the name of a popular brand of rolling papers that people would roll marijuana cigarettes. I felt like I had to tell you guys that because nobody here at church would know about rolling marijuana cigarettes, right? <laughs> Christians are forgiven, not perfect. <laughs> so Zigzag was there, and this guy had, had come to Christ, and God had changed his life. And so they, they were advertising this thing, and they said uh, uh, the, the, they were going to get the biker who traded in his bong for the Bible. And they said it would be really great if we could have the pastor with the pistol, uh, the cop who could tell people about the cross, now remember, this was the late 80s. Uh, some of you survived that time. You can remember uh, everything that was there. I didn't have a mullet. Uh, but you can imagine what the advertisement looked like. You got the, the biker who gave up his bong for the Bible and the pastor with the pistol and the cop and the cross. I mean, these, these billboards were horrendous. I'm, I'm glad social media wasn't around back then. So anyways, this is advertised all over this area. The, the, the people in that community uh, are seeing billboards and posters. And what happened is some of the good Christian folks started to call the church sponsoring this revival and said, what are you doing? Christians don't uh, mix with those people, these weeds-toking, uh, heathen people. What are you doing? And, and they, they called me. They called me and said, hey, what are you doing? You're, you're a, a guy training to be a pastor. You don't, you don't get around people like that. You, you need to cancel. And they tried to get this church to cancel the rally, but thankfully they didn't cave into the pressure. They went through with it. And we saw people come to faith in Christ through that rally and through that outreach. Some of you have heard of a great evangelist of the past. His name was D.L. Moody. And one time as he was sharing the gospel, there was a man who came up and he criticized Moody. And he said, uh, I don't like the way that you're, you're sharing the gospel. And, and Moody, being very gracious, said, well, I'm, I'm always willing to learn and grow. Uh, why, why don't you share with me how you share the gospel? And the report person replied, well, I don't have a way that I do it. And Moody said, I'll tell you what, I like the way I'm doing it better than the way you don't do it. <laughs> you know, as Christians, we can be really good as saying this is the way you do something, right? Here's, here's the rule book of what a good uh, man or woman, boy or girl, who's a follower of Jesus Christ looks like. And we, we have our list of do's and don'ts. And, and we exclude people, right? People who don't belong, whether it's these heathen bikers and, and weed smokers or somebody who has a different hairstyle than we do. Maybe they have tattoos or piercings. 
or in this group, maybe I should say those who are wearing a, a suit and tie and uh, things like that, and, and, and we exclude other people because we say, well, that person's too buttoned up. I mean, Jesus was always with the party people, right? Jesus would never come to the 915 service where, you know, those <laughs> other people are. Jesus was always in the synagogue. Jesus was always reaching out to the religious leaders. And Jesus was always in the crowd that didn't look like the religious people as well. You know, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And friends, if God doesn't look at the external and pick and choose who he's going to be around from that, why do we? You know, God looks at the heart. And you know what he sees in each and every one of us is a diseased, corrupt heart. But God didn't leave us that way, did he? He's the great physician who came to heal. He's the one who came to change us. He's the one who came to take a life like that of Levi and take him from being a pariah of society to, to one that was used to write one of the Gospels. Jesus said the sick need a doctor. Do you see yourself as sick? Are we those who look at Levi and say, well, that guy. Now, that guy's sick, you know. He's got cancer, but I just have a common cold, right? Because I'm not as bad as him. I'm, I'm, I'm not sick like, like that guy is. You know, the irony here is these religious leaders were just as sick as the sinners. They were upset that Jesus was around. But they were blind to it because they were living in their velvet ghetto, Right? They'd put a nice veneer over it. They had, they had this way of, of just kind of putting a facade over it. It's why Jesus would look at them and say, you're whitewashed tombs. You look pretty on the outside, but you're, you're dead and rotting inside. It's why later in Luke chapter 11, verse 39, we're going to read, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. The word Pharisee literally means separated ones. Separated ones. The Pharisees were the religious leaders who said, we are going to separate ourselves from society, from all the junk of the day. We're going to uh, get in a holy huddle. We're going to push away the, the wicked sinners. I want you to ask yourself a question. Are you a Pharisee? You're saying, well, Roger, I don't, I don't really like that word. Well, are you a separated Christian? Does that sound better? Do you separate yourself from the, the stuff of the world? Are we the type of people who say, uh, I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't go there, I don't hang around with this person or that person? Gary Enrig, who's a pastor, says, negative separation is not biblical separation. If spirituality is determined by what a person cannot do, then a paralyzed person would be the closest to godliness as they can't do much of the bad things we do. Do we see separation that way? Yes, we're not to be in the world. We're, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. We're not to be those who are, who are neck deep in the sin of the world. We're to be salt and light, though. You don't hide. Jesus says you don't hide your light under a bushel basket. And salt doesn't do any good if it's not out as a preservative in the world. Now, the Bible also warns us if salt has lost its saltiness, then it's no good. But as we're looking at this, 
These religious leaders had their rules and rituals. They were checking off, and they thought that as they stayed away from bad people and they did enough good things, they could get to God. But what God tells them is it's not about being religious. It's not about your rules. It's not about your rituals. It's about having a personal relationship with me. Jesus says, you guys have this huge hole in your safety net. What you're trusting in will not hold you. You think this is going to keep you from from falling and and ultimately going to that place of punishment, but he says what you're trusting in is is failing. It's wrong. It's not what I've set up. Now, they were were blind to that need. They self-righteously could point out the sins of everybody else. Well, look at Levi. Look at this person. But they were blind to their own sins. And they, they go on to attack Jesus even and his disciples. They say, you're not fasting like we're doing. You know, we're good at keeping the law, but you know what's interesting is that wasn't in the law. What the law said, the Mosaic law said there was one required fast on Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And, and adding to that, there were days of mourning that the Jews then started to say, well, this is a, a sorrowful, mournful occasion. We need to commemorate it with a fast. And they said, if, if a little is good, more is better, and let's even add to that. And they got to the point where they were saying, you have to fast twice a week. And this is what they were doing. You, we'll see later in Luke chapter 18 how proud they were because in Luke 18, 11 through 12, there's a Pharisee that's praying and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And then the cherry on the Sunday, he says, I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I get. And Jesus is going to correct this guy as he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, fasting isn't something you do to earn favor with God. Fasting was designed to be a time of personal devotion, where you pulled away from the activities of life. I mean, think about how much time you spend going to the store to buy food, then prepare it, then eat the meal, and then clean up afterwards. If you could capture the time that you spent doing that and set it aside and devote it to spend time reading God's Word and praying, how much more time would you gain in your day? And so a fast was designed to be a a time where you withdrew and and devoted that over to God. Now, if you do that every day, you'll starve to death, so you can't do that every day. And so this was a time set aside. And and the Pharisees wanted everybody to know how devoted they were. So when they were fasting, they they would go and they would get ash from the fire pit, and they'd, they'd rub it all over their face, and it would give them this pale, sickly look. And then they would take off their pretty robes and they would put on sackcloth, a real coarse, itchy, uncomfortable thing. And so between uh, being hungry and scratchy, you can imagine what their faces looked like. They had these long, mournful looks and they thought they were looking really holy and devoted to God. And Jesus' response to that practice was to say in Matthew 6, 16 through 18, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You see, this this is the background. It must have been one of those days of fasting. So they're in their, their scratchy clothes. They've got the ash on their face. They're 
walking around with their cheeks sucked in, they're, they're thirsty, they're hungry, and, and they walk past this party, and they hear the music, and they smell the food, the feast that's going on. They, they won't go in the house, but they can look through the window, and they can see everybody reclining at the table, laughing and eating and enjoying themselves, and boy, they get mad. They get mad because these people uh, aren't suffering like they are. I'm sorry, they're not as spiritual as they are, right? So they want everybody else to be miserable with them. Maybe you've heard of Irma Bombeck. She's home with the Lord now, but uh, she was known for her uh, humorous writings and things. And Irma Bombeck says that there was a time she was attending church. And as she was sitting in her seat, there was a, a cute little girl in the row in front of her. And she said this little girl stood up in the pew. She turned around. She was holding the pew, looking over at Irma. She had on a pretty little frilly dress. She had a smile on her face. She was waving. She was paying peekaboo. She was doing things uh, with Irma. And she said at that moment, her, her mother noticed what was happening. And she said in a stern voice to her daughter, Stop that grinning. You're in church. <laughs> and then she swatted her on the bottom. And the little girl's lips started to quiver. Tears came down her, and she turned around and sat down in, in a heap. And her mother looked over and said, that's better. Have you ever been around somebody like that? I love what Irma Bombeck says about this experience. She says, some people come to church looking like they just read the will of their rich aunt, only to learn she left everything to her pet hamster. Do you think that following God means you can't ever have any fun? Do you have to give up anything that is enjoyable in life? That you have to have ash on your face, go around with a gloomy look on your face? Friends, that's not what following Jesus is. Jesus Christ said in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, there are abuses in our day. There are these prosperity preachers who tell you, God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, sow a seed, reap a thousand, do this, get that. God, God wants to bless you, your best life now, all these things that are happening. That is not what God says. The Bible tells us, in fact, as a follower of Christ, he says there's going to be trials and tribulations. He says, if they persecuted me, what, what makes you think they won't persecute you? Jesus tells us that life isn't all a party. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to swing the pendulum all the way the other way and say, well, as believers who love Jesus, we have to look like the cover child for the book of Lamentations. That's not what he calls us to either. If you're afraid to follow Jesus because you've been around some unhappy or legalistic Christian who's convinced you you have to give up everything fun uh, to in, in this life, you're, those people are wrong. Jesus didn't say that. In fact, I want you to know the opposite is true. The only lasting joy in this life and the one to come comes through following the Lord of life. Jesus tells the, the leaders in our passage, there are times for mourning and there are times for joy. And at this point, he says it's time for joy. Look at verses 34 through 35. Jesus says, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with him, can you? But the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then 
they will fast in those days. In verse 34, Jesus uses a, a Greek interrogative, which is may. And what that simply means is it expects a negative answer. So it's not a question. As Jesus says this to these religious leaders, he's not asking them a question. What he's doing is declaring a statement. What he's saying is it's not time to fast, it's time to feast. You see, in that day when a wedding took place, the bride and groom didn't have a quick reception and run off for a honeymoon. They stayed, and there was a week-long party that took place. In the life of people in that day, that was usually the greatest time of joy and abundance in their life because they had a whole week of abundance and feasting. And he says, when the bridegroom is here with the attendants, you don't fast, but you feast. And as you read through the Bible, you see that the image of a wedding and the bridegroom in Scripture is Jesus Christ, and the church is called the bride. And what Jesus is telling them is, the bridegroom is here. The Messiah has come. I am the promised one. This isn't a time for my followers to be mourning. He says, there is a day coming. There will be a time when I go to the cross, when I am crucified, when I am killed and when I'm buried in the tomb and for three days they thought it was all over. He says, then there will be mourning. But that time of mourning will turn to joy because on the third day the tomb was empty and Jesus appeared and he showed everybody he was who he said he was, the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the one who had conquered sin and death, the Lord of life had come. And this is what Jesus is trying to get them to see. He says, even when the time of sorrow comes, there will be great joy at the resurrection. And and to help them understand what he's talking about, he gives two word pictures in verses 36 through 39. These are parables where he uses things people in that day would understand. He says, no one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new uh, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst. And the skins will be lost and they will be spilled out. And he says, no one after drinking old wine wishes for new. For he says, the old is good enough. See, what Jesus first of all says is, look, you guys, you become comfortable with the old wine. You have your rules and your rituals and your traditions. And you don't want to give that up for the new wine, the new covenant. Jesus says, uh, you guys like the power you have. You become exclusive. You become gatekeepers of an exclusive club, and you're saying these people stay out and these people get in. And he says, you've lost your purpose. You are, as the leaders of the, 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 the Torah, the, the, those who have the Tanakh, the Old Testament, you're to be telling people about who God is and how he loved them. You're to be telling what the prophet said about the promised Messiah coming. And he says, I am here. And to help them understand that, uh, he, he gives these two parables, things that everybody in that day understood. He starts out with the image of clothes that have a hole in it. And he says, when you come along to patch uh, clothing, you know that you don't put a brand new piece of cloth on it that hasn't been pre-shrunk. Now, in our day, People are looking around saying, well, no, you get a new pair of jeans and you cut holes in them, right? (laughs) But when I was growing up, which wasn't that long ago, you patched holes in your clothes. You didn't make them. And in the first century, you definitely patched your clothes because most people only owned one set of clothes. 
And when there was a hole, you fixed it, and you kept fixing it over and over. And they knew that if you uh, took new, uh, a new strip of cloth and put it on there, when it went into the wash, what would happen is it would shrink, and it would pull at the seams, and you would end up making things worse than they were before. That hole you were trying to patch just got bigger, and it ripped more and more. And so what he says is, you guys have created this patchwork religion of, of how you understand Judaism. And he says, that's not what the law is for. And then he goes on and he, he, he tells a second parable. You know, in, in terms of this um, patching up the system, he says, you don't take wine and, and put it into an old wineskin. See, in that day, everybody had a microbrewery in their house. You would process your own wine, and, and the way you did that, they didn't have barrels like we do. You would get a skin of an animal. And after you had scraped and processed it, and you had sewn it shut and, and sealed the seams, they would, they would keep the neck hole where they would tie it off as a spout. But what they would do is fill it with, with uh, new grape juice. And then you'd hang it up in your house. And you'd leave it there, and as it began to ferment, and the gases and things were happening, this, this wineskin you know, would start to expand and expand, and, and there came a point where you could say, this is ready. And he said, but if you take one of those things that has been used before, and you put new wine in the old skin, what has happened is that old skin has already stretched out, and it's become old and brittle, and as there's more expansion, you run the risk of the thing exploding. And you not only lose the skin, which could have been used as a water container now, you, you also lose the wine itself. And what he's doing is he's saying, don't patch up the old system. It's not what you're trusting in. It's going to lead to a catastrophic failure. He says, uh, I have come to fulfill the law. As you read Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5 tell us, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. You see, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. The law was not designed to save us. It wasn't about doing enough good things to get to God. Everybody failed at that. What the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is, for by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. What he says is you don't get to God by being good enough. It's through grace alone, through faith alone. And the religious leaders in that day, just as some in our day have done, is they set up a system. And they say, well, you have to follow these rules. You have to go to church this many times. You have to give this much money to God. You have to do these many good deeds. And, and you're hoping in time to counterbalance the bad with the good. But it's not by being religious that we're saved. It's by what Jesus did for us. Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 7 tell us, He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The world tells us, if your life is empty, fill it up. 
fill it up with toys and tech and a new car and a new house and a new job and maybe a new relationship. And, and right now at Christmas, everybody's telling you, you need all this stuff. And, and we think if we fill up our life with enough stuff, that we'll find significance and happiness. And what Jesus tells us is, you don't fill your life with the junk of the world that is passing. Levi was a guy who had, had it all, friends. He was rich. And he walked away from it. And you know, the mansion and the stuff he had in that day, it's all rotted, it's all gone. But the Gospel of Matthew that God used him to write is still present today. And if you're trying to fill your life with the stuff of the world, uh, you know that it ultimately leaves you empty. It's like these wineskins that burst. What God says instead is he wants to fill our lives with his presence. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, as Christians, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord and the Spirit of God dwells within you? It told us that by the mercy of Christ we're saved and that we've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. These are the pictures that Jesus gives to us. He says if you're living your life trying to patchwork things together and hope you've created a safety net that will save you one day, he says you're lost. Let me end with this illustration. Imagine for a moment that where I'm standing is one of the, the rims of the Grand Canyon. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, you know it's this, this amazing, beautiful place there in Arizona. And if you're on the north rim looking over at the south rim or vice versa, there's this, this massive chasm between you. And so picture this side of the Grand Canyon being earth and the other side is heaven. And we're all standing here on the earth side and we say, you know, we want to get to heaven. We want to get to God. And, and the chasm in between us represents our sin that separates us from God. And so what the religious leader said is, here's, here's the way we get there. Here's the system. You get on this side, you do enough good things, and then you can get to God. So it's like running as fast as you can and then jumping and hoping you get to heaven on the other side. So imagine for a moment you're standing here, and there, there are people like Levi, this bottom of the barrel, wretched type of sinner in that day, the pariah of society. So somebody like Levi, the religious leader, said... <laughs> Dude doesn't have a chance. He's going to run and try to get to God, and he's going to go right off the edge. And as Levi goes off the edge, he falls about a mile down, and he hits the ground splat. And he dies, right? But then other people come along. They're, they're, they're not as, as wicked as Levi. They're not as bad a sinner as him. And so th they've lived an okay life, and they run, and they jump, and they, they get out. You know, you, you pick how far you want them to go. It's about a mile across, right? So they get out a distance, and momentum runs out, and gravity takes over, and splat. They die too. But then along comes the religious leaders, the righteous, the people who have lived a life and checked off all the boxes and think they've got it made. And, and, and they run and they jump and, and they, get, they get going for a while, but, you know, they don't make it either. Because what Romans 3.23 tells us is, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody has made that standard of perfection. And because they're sinners, they fall, they splat, they die too. It doesn't matter if you're right off the edge as the, the worst axe murderer, if you get a little bit farther, or if you're the best person you can imagine who's ever lived a world-class runner-jumper because nobody makes it. 
And you're thinking, then how do we get there? How does anybody get there if nobody's good enough? Well, I told you everybody dies, and that's because the way we live our life, the way we earn things, 6.23 in the book of Romans says, the wages of sin is death. Wages are what you earn, the way you live your life, the stuff you do. It says, by the way we've lived our lives, the wages of sin is death. But here's the good news. The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, I have provided the way. Have you read John 14, 6? Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So picture the cross of Christ and make it more than a mile high, this massive cross, and you put one end here on the earth side and you lay it down across that chasm of sin so the other side is now into heaven. And what Jesus says is, I've given you the bridge. I've given you the way home, and there's only one way. It's not through works of the law. It's not by doing all these things. It is through me coming to fulfill the law, to pay the penalty of death. It's why Jesus died on the cross. The wages of sin is death. The only person who has ever not sinned as he walked this earth, he or she, every woman has ever sinned, every man has ever sinned, except for the God-man, Jesus Christ. And he did not owe the penalty of death, so he could pay it for us. He could take our place. And if you read Romans 10, 9, it says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And that's the gift that God offers us today. He says, it's not by being good enough. It's not by going to church enough. The only way home to heaven is through the gift I've offered you. And so if you're here today and you've never received God's great gift of new and eternal life, I invite you to do so. I'm going to pray our prayer as we close. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. But what you do have to do is recognize your need. You have to say to God, God, I recognize I'm a sinner. I owe a penalty of death. And I realize today, maybe for the first time, God, I cannot pay this penalty myself. I can't earn my way to you. I can't be good enough, God. But I thank you that you came and you took my place and you went to the cross and you died for me. If you'd like to receive God's gift to you, I invite you to bow your heads and pray this prayer with me. There's nothing magic about the prayer, but as Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, it's your way of saying to God, the word confession literally means to say the same thing as God says. We say, I recognize I'm a sinner, I'm lost, and I can't do it without you, Jesus. And I accept your gift of new life. If you'd like to receive that gift, pray this prayer with me. Dear Lord, I'm a sinner. I recognize that I've made mistakes in my life. And because of that, I owe a penalty, a penalty of death. I thank you, Jesus, that you came and you took my place, that you went to the cross for me, dying to wash away my sins with your blood. I thank you for the forgiveness you've given me I thank you for the gift of new life. Today, Jesus, I'm turning from my sins and to you to be my savior. I accept, I accept your payment in my place. Thank you for the gift of grace. Thank you for the gift of new and eternal life that I have now. 
and will experience one day when I'm home with you in heaven. I pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I'm going to be at the front after the service. There will be prayer leaders at the front. We would love to talk to you to make sure you understand the step of faith you just took and to begin to help you in your next steps as you walk with Jesus. And for the rest of us who have received him in the past, it's our turn to go out and share the good news of the gospel, to tell others what Jesus Christ has done for us. Will you stand please and sing this closing song of worship?
Praise church. Amen. God bless you. Merry Christmas to you. Have a wonderful week.